Can a mother forget her infant and be without tenderness for the child of her womb? Even should she forget, I, God, will never forget you. See, upon the palms of my hands, I have engraved you. That is Isaiah 49, verses 15 to 16, and this is the Living the Word Bible Podcast. I'm Sarah Chris Meyer, talking with women about the Bible and the difference it makes in our lives. Today, I am talking with Meg Hunter-Kilmer, Catholic speaker, blogger, and hobo for Christ. She was my guest for the very first episode of this Living the Word Bible podcast, sharing her love of scripture and her plan for reading through the entire Bible in a year. And now she's back to talk about some of the women in scripture and the dynamic impact that being known and loved by Jesus can have on our own lives. Meg, welcome back. Sarah, thanks so much for having me back. I love that scripture that you read to start with. It's one of the ones I probably use most often in my preaching. Well, I actually chose it with you in mind, obviously, because that is the scripture that you have as the head of your website. And I wonder if you could tell people about that. Held by His Pierced Hands is your website. Yeah, you know, I don't remember the circumstances of how the Lord gave me that title, but I've loved that verse for a really long time. And when I when I preach on the love of Jesus, I so frequently, I recite that verse I say, see upon the palms of my hands, I have written your name. And then I say, and 700 years ago, God prophesied, sorry, 700 years before the birth of Christ, (laughs) God prophesied that he would tattoo your name on his pierced hands. And when you hold it also up against another verse in Isaiah that comes just a few chapters earlier, it's Isaiah 44, verse five. It says, one shall say, I am the Lord's. Another shall be named after Jacob. And this one shall write on his hand, the Lord's. And, you know, I'd read that like so many times and then realized one time, I think maybe like 2014, 2015, I looked at the footnote. My, I use the New American Bible and the footnote talks about the Babylonian custom of tattooing the owner's name on the hand of the slave. Oh my. And I was like, oh, oh, so upon the palms of my hands, I have written your name isn't just like I'm in seventh grade and I doodle on my hands to Mm -hmm. like think about the boy I have a crush on. It's I have made myself a slave for you. Wow. Right. Which then of course is the master's name is on the hand. Yes, exactly. Right. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God talks about how Jesus makes him a slave, makes himself a slave for us. And then you tie that back in. You're looking at Isaiah 44, you're looking at Isaiah 49 and you're like, this isn't just, as a remembrance before me. This is an eternal testimony to the fact that I have handed myself over to you. Hmm. And so, you know, when you talk about tattooing, that just linked together with pierced for me because pierced isn't in what I read. It's just on his hands. I haven't, well, I have engraved you. So, but engraving requires some kind of cutting also. And so you think about his hands who were pierced for us, but they're pierced by us in a way also, but in a way that that we become part of him. Yes. And and considering that we stand before him as a testimony to him, right? That like mm. Jesus in heaven with his body, with his continually pierced hands, sees his hands and thinks of us with fondness, right? That's, that's this tattoo 
of love. And it's this tattoo of his eternal submission to us as one who has been made a slave for us. But it's also the, the piercing that Jesus continues to have in his hands. It's a testimony for Thomas, right? That like Thomas mm. needed to see that, but also for us. I mean, I think that it's easy to look at John, John's resurrection appearances and say, oh, Jesus allowed himself to rise with pierced hands as a gift for Thomas. And honestly, like that would have been enough. Like he's all about the one and not just the 99. But I think also the Lord orchestrated it in that way so that we could continually look on his wounds and see not only his love, but also the way that he glorifies suffering, mm. right? Not, not that he makes suffering a good thing and is like, yay, I love when I love when I suffer, but that he takes our suffering and he doesn't remove it, right? That the resurrection isn't this great do-over, it's a redemption. And so if his suffering is redeemed, then our suffering also can be redeemed. And we don't have to be delighted by it, right? Like Hebrews talks about him enduring the cross, despising its shame. We don't have mm-hmm. to be like, yay, something horrific happened. But we can in that moment say, this is awful. This is not good. But God works all things for good. And he's using this to draw me into his heart. Amen. So, so many layers of Isaiah 49, 15 to 16. So many layers. Unbelievable. I mean, I think I will never look at the crucifix the same way again. I'll be looking at, you know, not just at his arms stretched out, but at his hands and at his wounds. Yeah. Such a beautiful reflection. Thank you for that. Mm. And I love that you called your website that because that's something that you are all about, at least in my experience of listening to you and reading what you've written our wounds, people's wounds, the wounds of saints, the way Jesus reaches out and touches our wounds is so precious to you. And you are constantly calling people to that recollection and um, having us just think about the love of Christ and the way that he has shown that. I was reading John's gospel actually this morning and in the Living the Word Women's Bible and right at the beginning next to John 4, I came across your description, your beautiful uh, reflection on when Jesus met the woman at the well. And the thing that stood out to me when I read that is that you said he pressed his healing hand right into the wound of her, you know, five lost husbands. He did not beat around the bush. He just went right there where she was hurting. And I'd like to talk about this woman today. You know, what can you tell us about her and about this encounter that she had with Jesus? Golly, Sarah, I love her so much. Uh, <laughs> and it's funny because like, so I give a lot of talks all over the world and I really never give the same talk twice. And I don't even really like dealing with the same topic too frequently because I just find that the Holy Spirit really speaks to me through through the talks that I give, right? And so when mm-hmm. I start speaking on something, there are words that come out like, man, oh man, I gave a seven last words talk the other day and the Lord said so many brand new things to me. And I was like, somebody's writing this down, right? Like <sighs> I need to actually pray with this stuff later, but they weren't and I don't remember any of it. So we'll assume that it was the Holy Spirit for that particular audience. But this story is one where like, I love it so much and I love preaching on it so much that I regularly... I'm getting ready to give a talk and I'm like, okay, I don't know what I'm speaking on, but I know it's not John 4. I am not doing John 4 again. <laughs> and then in the opening prayer, I'm like, all right, okay. And I start the talk and I'm like, all right, turn to John 4 because it's just like 
I mean, <laughs> partially it's because this, the passage is so beautiful. Partially it's because the Lord has done so much in me. But I think also, so the woman that is featured in this gospel, the woman at the well in the East is called St. Fotina. Mm-hmm. And so the tradition of the church is that she's a saint in heaven. And I think she's just obsessed with me. I think she just like, <laughs> she really wants me to talk about her. And, and I so I do all the time. <laughs> yeah, I wonder, uh, I think most people know about the woman at the well, but there may be some people who are listening who don't even know what that story is. So why don't you start out by telling a little bit about that passage in John 4? So this is the gospel in John 4. And we all, we heard it a couple of weeks ago. It was one of the Lenten gospels. Man, oh man, the Lenten gospels were killer this year, Sarah. Ooh. <laughs> I never had to decide what I was going to preach on. I was just like, well, what gospel's coming next? We're just going to do that because it's so good. So she's the woman who's waiting at the well in the middle of the day. And if there's one thing that you can guarantee a Catholic preacher is going to cover in a homily, it's that she was there at noon because she was an outcast. And that's why she didn't go in the cool of the morning and she didn't go in the cool of the evening. And that's true. And it's important. And so I'm so proud yes. of them forgetting it every time. <laughs> there are some things you get in every homily where you're like, that's not okay. But this one is important. So Jesus shows up at this well in Samaria. And we just, we don't have enough context for this, right? Like we as 21st century American Catholics, we're like Samaria, Samaritans, the good guys who help people, right? Which is like, oh, yeah. wow, a hundred percent not what this text is intended to evoke. The best the best similarity I can draw is that this is, you know, these, these are their their neighbors to the north, but this isn't like, you know, the U.S. and Canada, there's maybe some rivalry and we make fun of them and they're polite and don't say anything back. This is like a little bit more South Korea, North Korea, hmm. but much longer term, right? There are centuries of animosity and hatred. This is your, like the pagan half-brothers of Israel. These, they should know better, right? And so there's so much loathing there. And so when we hear Jesus went to Samaria, it's like, oh my goodness, like what, what is he doing with the Samaritans? Like these people are worse than pagans because they should know better, right? And then he meets her at a well. And Sarah, in every Old Testament story, when a man meets a woman at a well, he marries her. Yes. Right? Like Moses meets Zipporah at a well, marries her. Jacob meets Rachel at a well, marries her. Isaac Stewart meets Rebecca at a well, brings her back for Isaac to marry her. So it's not like a rule, right? It's not like when you were in college, if you walk under the arch with that person, then you have to, <laughs> like, it's not that. It's, it's a trope. It's like an a Hallmark movie, if a woman is ice skating and she falls down <laughs> and a man in flannel comes and helps her up, like, you know how the movie ends. You don't yes. need to see how they save the Christmas tree farm. You know she marries this man, right? You've watched way too many of those Hallmark movies. There is Meg. no such thing as too many of those Hallmark <laughs> movies, Sarah. They're very important to me. But this is, we have to come at it from this perspective, right? This is the absolutely loathed enemy of Israel and the outcast of them. And Jesus is putting himself in a position as the bridegroom Messiah where we're like, oh my goodness, is he about to marry this woman? Right? Like that's, that's how much we are. We're back on the ropes, right? Is we're like, what is even going on here? And it's important to come at it from that context because we have to know how much he's supposed to loathe her. Mm -hmm. And we have to know how very exalted this relationship is about to become for us to be able to see ourselves in her and to recognize the 
just the incredible condescension of God who comes into our brokenness and our mess and says, look, I still want you. And this is a passage that I struggled with. I struggled with is probably even too strong of a term. I just like wrote off for years because when you just read the story, it doesn't make any sense, right? It's very disjointed. It's like her replies to him aren't, aren't like commensurate to what he's saying to her. And then all of a sudden she's talking about a mountain. And, and so I would just, I would read it and just be like, okay, uh, I don't know, whatever. And then I realized this isn't a story you can read. You really have to pray it. Hmm. You really have to imagine the look on her face. You have to imagine the way that he was speaking to her because we're just used to Jesus saying things like, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I shall give will never thirst. And we're like, yeah, yeah, like thirst and water and sheep and vines and Jesus is a gate. I don't know. And we have to recognize how absurd this would have seemed to her. That like So just to tell the the story basically, you know, he yeah. he shows up at that well in the heat of the day and asks her for a drink. And she's shocked because he's not supposed to be even talking to her, let alone drinking from her you know, from a jug that she has gotten water from and so on. Go ahead. And and she responds in exactly the way she should when a guy's talking to her like this, right? Like, Sarah, he skips the pleasantries. He's rude. He opens with, <laughs> give me a drink. And the first time I realized that, I was like, but Jesus isn't rude. And then I was like, Jesus is good and he's kind. But yeah, I've definitely had moments in prayer when I'm like, rude. And he's like, oh, do I have your attention now? Great. (laughs) Provoking it. Exactly. And he's clearly doing that here. He's coming with a wrecking ball to knock down all of her walls so that she doesn't just give him the drink because he doesn't want a drink. He wants her. Hmm. And she responds the way you would expect. She's like, I'm not going to give you a drink. And he's like, I'll give you a drink. And she's like, you don't even have a bucket. I mean, this is like, like word for word, what's going on in the scriptures here? There's all kinds of sass coming from this woman. And when Jesus then says to her, whoever drinks the water I shall give will never thirst. The water I shall give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. A normal reaction from a woman whose response to give me a drink was to come out flailing, like punching at him emotionally. <laughs> a normal reaction would be for her to be like, you are crazy. I'm not talking to you. And she says, sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. She doesn't react like he's being crazy, which is what this text really reads. Like if you're being honest with yourself, she reacts like this is the answer to all she's ever longed for Hmm. because it is. And so you've got to ask yourself, what must the look on his face have been? Right? How Hmm. tenderly must he have been speaking to her? How gently must he have been looking at her? And she responds like, okay, fine. Like I'm, I'm going to let go of all of my preconceptions. I'm going to let go of all of my anger and all of my shame. And like, yes, okay, give me this water. And then he says, go call your husband and call back, come back. And she's like, (laughs) yeah, there it is. Right. There it is. We knew it was going there. Like Jesus is leaning right in to the brokenness of her life. He's shining this spotlight in these dark areas she's tried to keep hidden. When I realized that's what he was doing there, that he was offering himself to her. And the minute she said yes, he was like, great, but I'm not going to let you just stay in your misery and your shame and your brokenness. Like I need 
to bring this into the light so that I can bring healing. And she responds the way that every one of us would if somebody's like, oh yeah, but real quick, let's talk about your abusive childhood. Just like real quick, let's talk about your abortion. Just real quick, let's talk about your mental illness, right? Like whatever it is in our lives that makes us feel ineligible for the love of God, that makes us feel like if the church knew they wouldn't want me, Jesus is like, we're going right there. And she's like, great, Mm. great. Okay, fine. Like I've had five husbands, you know, like I'm not married, right? And he says, yeah, I know. You've had five husbands. The one you have now is not your husband. I know I still chose you. I still wanted you. And the intensity, I mean, because it's not just you saying, oh, okay. Well, if that's what we got to deal with, that's what we got to deal with. That's just saying, oh, yeah. The reason that I came here to enemy territory to talk with an outcast is because I knew that you've had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. I know that you feel victimized. I know that you feel guilt and shame. I know that you feel grief. I mean, we don't know the circumstances, right? Maybe all five of them died. Maybe maybe she's like Sarah in the book of Tobit where everyone died on her wedding night and people think that she's this black <laughs> widow, right? Maybe maybe some of this is her fault. Maybe none of it is her fault, right? Maybe like she cheated on one guy, but like another guy kind of came. We don't know, which is beautiful because we can look at this and, and we can see our guilt or we can see just the evil that's been done to us or we can see circumstances that are beyond anybody's control that we somehow still hold as though they're our fault. We can see a mix of all of this. It's, it's literally any wound that you're bringing to the table. Jesus is saying, I know, and I still wanted you. Mm. I still chose you. There's no sense that we have to perform, that we have to be good enough for him because he comes to us very deliberately in our brokenness so that he can be the one who brings healing. And Sarah She's had six men, which is the number of imperfection, the number of incompletion. And Jesus comes, the bridegroom Messiah, to meet her at a well in his flannel shirt as number seven, the number of completion, right? The true bridegroom of her soul, the one who's going to see her exactly as she is and accept her completely. And she changes the subject. Yeah. I was going to say, he doesn't ask her to marry him. No, this is not a Dan Brown situation, right? Right. In the sense that he's the the bridegroom of all of our souls. But this is so overwhelming, so intense, so beautiful. She cannot handle it. Mm -hmm. And she changes the subject to talk about liturgical (laughs) minutiae. Right? And I I mean, I don't know about you. You're a human being, so I'm assuming. But I have been there, right? Where like the Lord is trying to do something really intense in me in prayer. And I'm like, maybe I'll just say a rosary. Right? Yeah. Like maybe I'll just throw Hail Marys at you until you shut up. Nothing wrong with the rosary. <laughs> but especially as Catholics, we really fill our prayer lives with noise sometimes so that we don't have to hear the voice of God. Mm. And he's so patient with her. He's like, okay, we can talk about mountains. Like that's fine, but I'm not going to stop wanting this intimacy with you. And she tries to, she tries to dismiss him in verse 25. She says, I know the Messiah is coming, the one called the anointed. When he comes, he'll tell us everything. And she's like clearly halfway out the door at this point. And Jesus says, I am he. That blows my mind when he says that. Right? I mean, he hasn't told anybody else that. And he won't until Holy Week. And she's not even a Jew. She's She's not an apostle. 
He's the outcast of the outcast of the outcast. Like you cannot get more outcast than this woman. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. And even the other women don't want to talk to her, right? Like this woman is a piece of garbage in the eyes of the world. And Jesus doesn't just come for her, doesn't just love her in her brokenness, doesn't just reveal himself to her, but he makes her an apostle to the entire nation of Samaria. Yeah, he entrusts his deepest secret, (laughs) his biggest message to she's the one to go and tell people about it. I mean, talk about putting faith in someone. And this is the, the heart of what it means that Jesus comes as bridegroom Messiah, right? Like I love when I love when people have that experience of Jesus as their friend, like that's great. That's way better than Jesus as butler or Jesus as like distant mm-hmm. divinity in the sky. But he doesn't just want to be your friend, right? Like you can see your friend every other week and that's adequate. You can have whole areas of your life that you conceal from your friend and that's appropriate because boundaries are healthy. He wants to be your bridegroom. He wants to give all of himself to you, including the secrecy of his messianic identity. He wants to give his body, blood, soul, and divinity. He wants to become a slave to you. And he wants the same thing from you, right? He wants you to hand your whole self over to him, not just coffee for an hour a week, but like to stand naked before him and say, this is all of the ugliness of my life that I don't want to deal with. And for him to say, I still love you. And to let him love you. Exactly. Hmm. So next in the story, the disciples come back (laughs) and they can't handle it that he's talking to a woman. Don't even know what to say. They're totally silent. (laughs) Don't you love the way that John writes this? John says, at that moment, his disciples returned and were amazed that he was talking with a woman. But still, no one said, what are you looking for? Or why are you talking with her? Which you know, John is literally writing down the things that they were debating saying to him oh, as yeah. they were walking up, right? Peter was like, I'm just going to ask him, why are you talking to a woman? Why are you talking to a woman, right? And Philip was Samaritan like, woman. I mean, maybe, well. maybe like back off a little bit. And Peter was like, what, what? I'm going to ask him. I have a sword, you know, like whatever, right? <laughs> and John is like, no, we like fought about this as we were walking up and we decided we weren't going to say anything because we didn't know much about Jesus at that point, but we were used to him doing weird things. And so we like kept our mouths shut, but we, but you can tell it was a fight, right? That he like specifically 60 years later, when writing this story, has to be like, we did <laughs> not say anything, but man, it was hard, you guys, right? Like, I just think it's so cute. And they, they walk up and it says, the woman left her water jar, went into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I have done. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So she leaves her former purpose and she's empowered. She's set out to be an evangelist, but the way that she witnesses Sarah is by telling her story, which isn't just powerful because it's indicative of the way that we tell people about Jesus, but she's going to the people who have made her life hell for probably decades and shining a spotlight right on the parts of her life that they had made her so deeply ashamed of. Yeah, I love that, you know, she says, he, here's a man who has told me everything I've ever done. And their first reaction is probably, oh, yeah, we already know. Right. They're like, <laughs> you know, sorry, and you were okay with that? Because, girl. Yeah. And yet some people believed that he was the Messiah based on her testimony. And others went to find out for themselves and came to believe. Yeah. And it just like, 
I mean, the power of this woman, we really don't see that kind of evangelical power elsewhere in the gospels. You know, the other Mm. times we see like one person coming or like they, maybe they hear about a miracle and some people coming, but this isn't, I mean, him reading her soul is miraculous, but this isn't like that guy used to be dead and now he's not dead anymore. And people are like, I should check this out. This is, he was invasive and reached into the broken parts of my life and knew me exactly as I was. And people are like, whoa, really? I want that too. Yeah. The testimony of healing that she must have given to them to make them think that sounds like a good thing that I should check out. The way that she must have been able to speak with peace and freedom Mm -hmm. and joy about the parts of her life that had been so shameful. I mean, just, I, I can't even imagine how astonishing the change in her aspect must have been for them to be like, this seems like it's worth checking out. And it's so encouraging because I think a lot of times we think, oh, I can't be an evangelist. I can't go out and tell people about Jesus because what will I say? And what if I get something wrong and I don't know my theology or whatever the reason is? She didn't know any of that. Yeah. You know, she didn't have the right theology. Not a you bit. Know, she's a Samaritan. And who knows what she understood of what he was telling her earlier. But that's not what she told. She gave a personal testimony to what he had done for her and people were attracted. Yeah, it was, I met Jesus and he loved me. That's it. And we don't have to have this dramatic testimony, right? It doesn't have to be, I had five husbands. The one I have now is not my husband. It's just, I met Jesus and he loved me. Yeah. And that makes a difference. So I'm thinking about another woman in the New Testament, actually in John's gospel of a woman who's transformed because Jesus reached out and met her and transformed her. And she became an apostle (laughs) to the apostles also, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. And man, oh man, during the Easter season, I can't keep my mouth shut about this one either. Just looking at the way, I think especially the way that we see that Mary was broken by the death of Jesus in a way that the story about the apostles doesn't indicate was true of them. You know, they've, they've got someplace else to go. They're going back to the upper room. You know, Peter was like, I can get my boat back. I can go fishing again. Mary Magdalene was just like, if he's dead, I'm just going to weep at the tomb until I die too. So, So just to back up a little bit, you know, what, what do we know about Mary Magdalene? To begin with. Very little, Sarah. We know very little about Mary Magdalene and we have a lot of things that are made up. What do we know? <laughs> we know that Jesus cast seven demons out of her and that she followed yeah. him. Well, those are two very big things. Two very big things. But a lot of people think the only way that a woman can sin is by being a prostitute. And a lot of thing, people think that the only way that you can experience demonic possession, manifest itself in sin. And these are not things that we know about Mary Magdalene. There's a strong tradition from St. Gregory the Great. And if you want to personally meditate on those assertions that have been made, that is perfectly fine. Like there's so much space in scripture for us to identify different characters. You know, a lot of people think that Mary Magdalene was the sinful woman who anointed Jesus in Luke 7. If you want to pray on that, that's great. But you can also pray on Mary Magdalene as being a woman who gave no evidence of sin in her external life, who had everything all together and who was internally haunted by demons. And Jesus gave freedom that the world didn't even know she needed. That would be a great way to pray with Mary Magdalene. You can pray with Mary Magdalene as somebody who was like utterly competent, but like 
absolutely harassed or harried and frenzied all of the time. And that was the way that the demons manifest so many different ways to pray with Mary. So similar to the woman at the well. I mean, we know that she lost five husbands, but we don't know how. Exactly. And the beauty of, of having just the bare bones of that is that it can touch our lives in, I mean, so many different people's lives. So maybe you're a person who has lost five husbands or multiple husbands because you're a widow or because through divorce or whatever it is, you know, you can relate and you're not tied down to one particular story or type of wound. And the same with Mary Magdalene. I mean, no matter what the manifestation was of those demons, you know that it was painful for her. It was a horrible, horrible thing. And Jesus delivered her. And consequently, she followed him. She gave up whatever her life was and followed him which is amazing. And then that takes us to the resurrection appearance, which is where you started. And maybe you want to pick up there again? Yeah. And I think that she was just, she had built her life so fully on Jesus that if he was dead, she just had nothing left, right? Mm-hmm. And even the other women go to the tomb with her. And then it, it seems that they go out and they're like, what, what's going on? Mary Magdalene, having brought Peter and John back to the tomb Peter and John then leave and Mary Magdalene, it says in John 20, verse 11, Mary stayed outside the tomb weeping. And it, it just has this feeling of like, well, this will be my tomb too. Mm-hmm. Like, I just can't, I can't go on. I have nothing else. Like, And then when the angels say, women, why are you weeping? She says, they have taken my Lord and I don't know where they laid him. And she turns around and sees Jesus and he says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? She thought it was the gardener and said, sir, if you carried him away, Tell me where you laid him and I will take him. Mm-hmm. And just the desperation there, she's not thinking straight. She's like, I will pick up his 180 pound corpse and I will carry it. I, like I could, it's fine. I will just, she just can't even process how. But she wants to be with him. She just wants to be mi- with him. Yeah. And her life is so miserable in this moment. She's like, I don't care what it costs. I don't care what, what the results are. Like I'm, I just need to be near him. And then Jesus says to her, Mary, in the tenderest word ever spoken by human voice. Her name. And I, I tell you what, like I am, I'm living my whole life in the hopes that one day I'm going to hear him say my voice or my name in that voice. Mm-hmm. It's just, I can't even imagine the feeling, right? That when she was just in the utter depths of despair and he says her name and I can kind of imagine like a little smile teasing at the corners of his lips because he like he's honoring her grief and he's there with her in her pain. And he's also like, baby girl, like, yeah, open your eyes and look at me. Right. Like it is beautiful that you are allowing your pain to draw you to the tomb. But like you also can't allow your grief to blind you to the reality of the mm. resurrection and the goodness of what is here before you. And and then I think she tackled him. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> I think she was just so excited that she like flung herself on him and was squeezing mm-hmm. the breath out of him and he, and that's why he says, "Okay, all right. Stop holding on to me. Like I do need to breathe in this body. All right, like give me give me a break here." He sends her out. I mean, she becomes the apostle to the apostles. And it's because she allowed herself to stay in her grief. She didn't require herself to move on. She, she said, this is miserable and I'm not going to pretend that it's not miserable. 
And that's the way that the Lord met her. And that's the way that he empowered her to be the first witness to the good news. Once again, picking somebody who other people might not take seriously. You know, it's it's astonishing that he doesn't entrust himself to the most articulate, respected, you know, people necessarily. He picks these women to go and share what they have encountered with him and the love that they've experienced from him. And he's really unconcerned that their testimony didn't hold any weight in a court of law. He's really unconcerned Mm -hmm. that for the rest of time, the first witness is going to be these women who are, I mean, their testimony is treated like hysterical babbling, right? This is not like now these women come and we're like, oh my gosh, wow, Jesus, Jesus must have risen from the dead, right? The apostles, having heard Jesus say that he was going to rise from the dead, they hear the testimony of the women and they're like, okay, you guys seem like you're just maybe a little bit over emotional at this point. You know, like we're not, we're not really sure that this is a thing that happens. But maybe we should check it out. Maybe we should check it out. Like maybe, I don't know. Like, and Jesus is like, it's okay. Because the point of my appearing to them isn't that they are the ones who are going to convince the most people. He's not about efficiency hmm. in, in the passing on of the gospel. He's about the individual. And he's like, Mary needs me right now. Mary needs me right now. And I think that there's a degree to which he's like, the world needs to know for the rest of time that women's witness is important. But Jesus is able to work for everybody and to work for each one at the same time. And in that moment, there is a degree of urgency. Like, I cannot leave Mary in this pain by herself for one moment longer. And so I'm going to her first because she just really needs me right now. And I can't stand to wait 10 minutes while she is racked with sobs like this. Like I'm going in right now. Hmm. There's so much to, um, to really think of personally when we read this, you know, where do you go when you think God has dis- that Jesus has disappeared or when you don't hear God? or you don't recognize him. You know, I love the way she went to the tomb and we can go to the Adoration Chapel. You know, we can go to him even when we don't see him and count on him coming to us with his presence and his love. And for me, it's so much about what's my contingency plan, hmm, right? Like what what, what's my backup plan if Jesus isn't God? Am I, hmm. I going to leave town and go to Emmaus? Am I going to go back? the fishing boat that I like rented to somebody but didn't sell because I want to make sure that I've got a plan in case this Jesus thing doesn't work out? Or have I built my life so thoroughly on him that I don't have a backup plan? And if Jesus Mm -hmm. isn't God, I might as well curl up in a ball and die. To whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. Exactly. And I want to be a person who lives in such a way that if Jesus isn't God, my entire life is an absolute waste. And I am deserving of most pity in all the world. So thinking about these, these two beautiful encounters, what would you most want people to take home from that and meditate over the rest of this Easter season that we have before us? I mean, girl, all I want anybody ever to think about is how desperately Jesus loves them. (laughs) (laughs) And seeing it with Fotina, 
And then he comes to her in her brokenness and then he pushes past her walls and then he like sits there and holds her sass. You don't even have a bucket, right? Like isn't <laughs> isn't deterred by by this these spikes that she's throwing at him, right? Like he's he's hugging her and he's loving her and he's holding on to her and like respecting her boundaries, right? He's not pushing too hard. Um, but he's he's not not deterred by anything in her life, not by her past, not by her present, not by her future. And with Mary Magdalene, it's the same thing, right? Like we don't know exactly what he stepped into when he loved her, but we know that not even death could stop him from coming back and saying, hey, Mm. like I'm yours. I love you, right? I'm right here. And he meets her in a garden, right? This new Adam who comes to her and calls her woman, which is what Adam called his wife, right? Before before the fall, there in yeah. the garden, Eve's name was woman. Jesus speaks that word woman. It's the first word we know that he spoke after the resurrection. And there's something beautiful there too, because mm. that's what he called his mom. And so just thinking about like that first recorded word. Now, maybe there's a tradition, at least in the Philippines, that Jesus went to Mary first, to, to his mom first. And so that echoes the word that he would have spoken to his mother, calling her woman. And just that he saw Mary Magdalene with the same tenderness that he looked at his mother. Mm. That he looks on us with the same tenderness that he looks on his mother. That his love isn't, it isn't colored by our brokenness and by our sin and by like how much snot we have streaming down our face because we're crying so hard in the garden right now and how like completely irrational we're being saying, I'm just going to pick up his corpse and carry it away. He just looks at us and is like, oh, sweet child. Mm-hmm. Right? And that degree of love, whether we're so far away from him as the woman at the well was, or whether we're like right there clinging to him as Mary Magdalene was, it doesn't change how desperately he loves us. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder if you have a favorite scripture passage or something that we can leave people with to pray with and that we can pray with them right now. One of my favorites that really, really communicates that tenderness of Jesus for me is Matthew 10, 29 to 31, which I, I use the New American Bible, but it's, are not two sparrows sold for a small coin, but not one mm. of them falls to the ground without your father's knowledge even all the hairs on your head are counted. So do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And I always picture myself as like a little street urchin. I'm like Mm. 10 years old and I'm wearing this like terrible burlap thing that's all like raggedy at the bottom and my face is all dirty and there are visible tear streaks through the dirt on my face. And Jesus gets down on his knees in front of me and cups his hand around my cheek and says, oh, sweet girl. Oh, baby, are not two sparrows sold for a small coin? Not one of them falls to the ground without your father's knowledge. Like, don't think I don't see you. Don't think I don't know your pain, honey. I am right there with you in it. And just that, like, that tenderness, that intimacy, and like my being such a mess and him being totally undeterred is so powerful for me. Beautiful. And it links right back to being engraved in the palms of his hands. So let's, let's pray with that together. I'm going to read it again. And if you're listening, close your eyes 
and allow this word of love to speak into your heart. Come, Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds to receive your word. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground without your Father's will. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Heavenly Father, your love for us is just overwhelming. The love of your Son is overwhelming. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to us in our brokenness, in our need, in our sorrow, and cupping our faces in your hand and loving us in spite of everything because of who we are to you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for the life and the strength that it brings. Open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive and to ponder what you say to us in Scripture. Give us the grace that we need to love and live your word in our daily lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, the living word, amen. Mary, Mother of the Word, pray for us. Potina and Mary Magdalene, pray for us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Meg. It's really been wonderful talking to you as usual. And I wonder if you can let people know where they can reach you and find out more about you and your ministry. So the easiest thing to do is to Google Hobo for Christ and you will find my website that I remember exists oh every couple of years. But my social media handles are all on there and I'm pretty good about Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And you can find a link to the various books that I've written if you want to check out what I've had to say about the saints or about scripture and try and get to know Jesus a little bit better through those. Yes, and don't forget that she has a, a new book that walks you through the Bible in a year. And that reading plan is printed at the back of the Living the Word Catholic Women's Bible as well. Thank you for that. There's a great gift that you've given us with that, Meg. My pleasure. So this is Sarah Chris Meyer, and this has been the Living the Word Bible Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Join me every Thursday for conversations with women who love and live God's Word. And you can also join our Instagram community. It's at Living the Word Bible. And I'd like to let you know, coming out this month in April 2023 is a new companion journal to go with the Living the Word Catholic Women's Bible. And if you would like to get a copy of either of those, right now there is a special price, $5 off each of them and free shipping. Just go to AveMariaPress.com and use the promo code BiblePodcast, all one word. And that offer is good this entire year. So may God richly bless you as you read and pray with His Word. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.